Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Quick programming note for this week. I had set up an interview and was about to go basically hit record, um, but then in kind of doing some final research, came across some pretty serious allegations against the person I was going to interview. There's an ongoing legal case. It's all very, um, it's all pretty serious and Basically, I just felt that this podcast is not a place for a you said versus they said and what's right, what's not. So I just basically made the decision to say, you know what, we're just not going to do that one this week because we need to let the um, the legal gears grind on and reach a decision before having that person on. So all of that said, we're going to run instead um, one of my favorites from the past a year, of a little over a year ago, we had on. Brian Johnson, uh, you may have seen him around the internet since he was on our show. He's kind of everywhere now, famously because he is trying to reverse his age through all kinds of pretty extreme measures. You know, he's got a gigantic team of doctors spending millions on his body, transfusing blood from his son into himself, keeping count of the number of erections he has while he sleeps, all kinds of really off-the-wall stuff. But before he kind of really, really blew up, we had him on the podcast and talked to him for about uh, an hour about his whole, what he calls the quote-unquote, the blueprint for a long, healthy life and all these things he is doing. So that's what we're going to run this week. Um, And again, I apologize for not giving you a brand new fresh and clean episode but sometimes these things happen and I just thought it was best to kind of take the loss on that one so anyhow thank you for your understanding and hope you enjoy this one if you've already heard this one have another listen so now here he is Brian Johnson and we'll be back next week with a new episode talk soon yo technology what is it all about that which is normal today was crazy yesterday. And a lot of people look at me and my protocol and they label it with a word that acknowledges how different it is from the norm. And so crazy, uh, eccentric, you know, they use these words to try to paint this like, this guy's just out, he's out there. Yeah. But the history of humanity is these out there ideas become the norm and then everyone forgets that it was crazy at one point in time. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How are you doing? For our American listeners, hope you had a fabulous Thanksgiving. For everyone else, I'm sad for you because you didn't have Thanksgiving. Mine was glorious. I am now like doing a food and drink detox given how much I consumed last week with my family in Dallas. Shout outs to them. Uh, really nothing like Thanksgiving, but given that we're now firmly in the zone of excess generally between Christmas, all the parties, New Year's, eating, drinking, being merry, etc. There's perhaps no better time for this week's guest. Brian Johnson is on the program. Now, you may recall uh, that name because we had Brian on back in February to talk about his company, Kernel, and they had developed this neural measurement device, really basically a helmet, a high-tech helmet analyzing brainwaves. And Brian, in his previous life, he ran a company called Braintree, which created Venmo, which they then sold to PayPal. So he did really well, made a bunch of money, and then he went on to create Kernel. And the theory behind it was that this device that they developed over many years would provide a glimpse into our gray matter never before possible, potentially unleashing an entirely new way to approach life, given that 
you know, you could analyze in real time what was happening in your brain from the foods you eat, the programs you watch, the friends you have, all that kind of stuff. So you kind of get a really real time picture of the different stimuli inside your brain. Um, so it was a pretty far out there idea, but we wanted to bring him back on to talk about what is arguably an even more outlandish idea. So Johnson has created this system, really. It's dietary, sleep, exercise, kind of whole life system, which he calls the blueprint. And he says that by following the blueprint, which he has developed with a whole team of doctors and professionals in the kind of the health field, that he has reversed his biological age by half a decade in just half a year. And what does that mean, biological age? It's what they call the, your kind of epigenetic age. It's, you measure the function of various key organs in your body, and you say, well, I'm 45, but my lungs are those of a 35-year-old because I'm in really good shape, for example. Not true in my case, but you get the idea. Anyhow, he reckons that through the creation of this blueprint system that he could unlock, in his words, an entirely new way to be human now. This is not for everyone. It is pretty extreme. It involves fasting, intense exercise, a down-to-the-single-calorie approach to food and drink. But it is very much in line with this idea, which is very of the moment and kind of always is out here on the West Coast. And we've covered this in various ways before on this podcast, but this kind of obsession or real concentration on this idea of human improvement, of striving for maximal health, maximal longevity, hacking biology to achieve peak performance, peak humanness. Now, some of you will simply listen to this and dismiss this as an uber-rich guy with too much time and resources um, that no one else has to obsess over how many teaspoons of olive oil you should drink in the morning. Others might be like, hmm, that's interesting. If there's, uh, maybe I can pluck this little thing over here and this little thing over here and see how it affects my health, life, whatever it may be. Either way, I think you will find the conversation just really fascinating. So here he is, Brian Johnson, tech mega millionaire, founder of Kernel, and the creator of The Blueprint, which may be the easiest route to the fountain of youth. And just before we get to that, I will put the links to, he has a, a webpage where he describes all the things he's doing so you can kind of see all the nitty gritty details. I'll put those in the show notes so you can check that out as well. But anyway, hope you enjoyed the conversation. Here he is. So I was on the blueprint, the website that you have created and, and I was kind of having a noodle around, but for the uninitiated, very high level, what is the blueprint? It is a program that my team and I have put together to try and achieve optimal health. It really was born out of a, a problem I had, which is I had a problem of overeating and I could not stop myself from doing so. And one day I whimsically thought, you know what? It, the biggest problem I have is Brian from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. I do well all day long and then this rascal shows up and he makes bad decisions every single day. He ruins our sleep. He makes us feel miserable. We hate life. So Blueprint is a system of eating and being that is meant to uh, eliminate my tendencies to commit self-harm. Just so, so if we could talk about, because I, I read a piece, I think you wrote a couple of years ago that you quote unquote fired yourself. You fired evening Brian for the right. benefit of the other Brian's of the, like the morning Brian and the rest of the day Brian. <laughs> so when you talk about overeating, I mean, you weren't like professor clump obese or anything like that. <laughs> I felt miserable about myself and life. Right. And at the same time I was doing this, I was also becoming a pilot. And as I learned the culture of aviation, when you get onto a plane and before you fly, you go through a checklist of maybe a hundred things to make sure everything is secure. You never go by memory. You never go by willpower. You just go through your checklist, you have everything on the list. And then when you fly, you, you, know, you take off. And once you get up in the air, autopilot runs the plane and autopilot has a whole bunch of sensors uh, that it, it constantly integrates and then it flies and it flies substantially better than I could with my hands alone. Yeah. 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 And so I, I wondered basically, is there a way to run my, my health 
like I do in aviation because aviation is safe. We board planes. We, we trust in the systems of aviation to go from place point A to point B in a safe fashion because of the systems they've built. And when we go about our daily lives in society, we are not safe. And so if you think about this in terms of what threatens us, it's no longer the lion on the savannah that's trying to get us. It's McDonald's on the corner and their colors are bright and happy and their marketing is clever, but it is a unsafe place in the world for us to try to have good health. And so I wondered, could I bring the principles of aviation into my dietary life to basically help me be safe and not commit self-harm? And that's what this entire thing is about. So I want to get to that and I want to get to dinner specifically because your <laughs> dinner is a little different from other people's. But before we get to that, so can we kind of skip to the end and then we'll go backwards, which is you've been doing this for the kind of the blueprint, the system that you have created for how long now? Uh, coming up on two years. Coming up on two years. And what has been the result or results that have like been most beneficial or most interesting to you? First, there's a few hundred biomarkers we track in my body. For example, there's ideal levels of cholesterol and of blood sugar levels and of, you know, hundreds of markers. And so we've mapped those out of each one has an optical clinical outcome range based upon gold standard scientific evidence. And we said, can we be perfect in every single marker? And we're pretty close to this core set of being perfect in these set of markers. So that's from a data perspective, from a feelings perspective of how I feel about life and myself, I've never, ever felt better. Previously, I was irritable, couldn't sleep. I was tired all the time. I was cloudy. I was setting a terrible example for my kids. And so I'd say I've never been happier about life generally than I am right now. And you also have, um, which gets to kind of one of the bigger questions is like you, you have reversed, let's say your epigenetic age. So can you talk about what you have achieved there and what actually is epigenetic age for those who, who don't know? Blueprint is, is about how to achieve optimal health. The reversing of age is really a side effect of these things. Basically, there's a way to measure age chronologically. That's how we do it as a society. When you leave your mother's womb, day zero. And then there's a way to identify a biological age. And so, for example, a 10-year-old's heart is different than a 60-year-old's heart in its function. Right. And so you can look at a heart and you can characterize it according to a whole bunch of parameters and say, does this heart look like a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old? And you can do that same thing for almost all organs of the body. Not I say almost all because not organs have nice age profiles, but some do. And so the question was, if I was able to achieve optimal health, would my organs naturally go to a younger state? Because I'm chronologically 45 years old. You know, for example, would my heart become years younger in its profile according to how I was living the lifestyle? And so one of the ways to measure aging, which is an exciting area of science, is epigenetic age. And so you're looking at DNA methylation patterns. Uh, think of it like tree rings. And it, it's still an emerging science. There's a lot of caveats to it, but it's an interesting marker. And so, yes, I was last year, I reduced my epigenetic age by 5.1 years in seven months. And so it's like, I think it's 0.73 years of age reversal per month. And I did it using an average of six different epigenetic age clocks. There's quite a few with different calculations to show, to make the, the uh, results more robust. But yeah, it's meant to demonstrate that a lot of people encounter this topic and they say, first, eggs are bad for you, then they're good for you, then they're bad for you. No one knows. And they give up entirely. They just say, I'm just going to do whatever because no one knows. And what this endeavor shows is there is an approach, which Blueprint is, which uses scientific evidence and data to have a more correct answer than a less wrong answer. Wait, <laughs> it is less wrong than potentially other answers. And we use it entirely according to data. It's, it's not an opinion-based thing. So epigenetically, based on these biological markers, which you're testing with some regularity, chronologically, you are 45. How, are, how old are you genetically or epigenetically rather right now? 42. I, I went from 49 to 42. Yeah. And then I, we do these age markers across 
every organ in my body we can. So we've aged my heart and my brain and my lungs and you know, uh, a whole bunch of different biological processes. So I've aged myself. I am a collection of you know a hundred or so different age markers that we manage. So let's talk about the blueprint a little bit. Like what time do you wake up? You know, spoiler alert, I don't know if this is still the case. You eat dinner at 11 a.m., quote unquote dinner at 11 a.m., <laughs> pre-noon. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, I know there's, it's a fairly involved process, but can you kind of talk about what the blueprint actually is on a day-to-day? Like what is a typical day? So the, the way that the protocol is determined is I basically agreed in this experimentation to say, okay, I'm signing up for a system where I'm going to measure hundreds of things about me. It's going to then be processed through gold standard scientific evidence. And then I'm going to do whatever the data says. So this is not something where I, you know, it's the, the expectation is not that everyone's going to do this. This is just simply an experiment I said of I'm going to, ju- I'm going to be the guinea pig and do whatever. And that sometimes results in significant life changes and I have to be willing to adapt to these things. And so what I have found is optimal for me is, yeah, I do wake up around somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m. and uh, have a morning drink, uh, which is very precise. I work out and then breakfast. And then I'm basically finished up with my eating by 11 or noon every day. So I eat during a six-hour window and then I fast for the remainder of the day. That sounds painful. <laughs> not, <laughs> not eating after noon sounds painful. Well, I mean, how was that adjustment period? That is the, the most common reaction is when people hear this, instantaneously, their brain generates a list of 20 reasons why they hate it. Yeah. And then the, the hate list is like all the reasons why it would be inconvenient, all the reasons why it'd be painful. And so then their brain goes to all the reasons why they hate this whole idea. And if you breathe into this just for a minute and acknowledge that initial knee-jerk reaction of one's brain, it's possible to imagine that these changes actually produce more happiness and more freedom and more life fulfillment than anything that one does today. Now, I'm not saying that's the case, but what I am saying is oftentimes when our brains encounter things we're unfamiliar with, we want to punch it in the face. And that happens very commonly here. Did that happen with you? Because well, as you say, you were led by the data. And if the data is like, all right, Brian, morning, Brian. <laughs> Yeah. Morning Brian is the only person who's going to eat. <laughs> I mean, were you like, yeah. uh, okay. I mean, were you kind of all in or not? So the surprising things that have happened. So one is I love every second of this. Like it brings me so much joy to be doing this. What I have found, for example, is because I eat, uh, I'm on a caloric restricted diet. So 1,977 a day. One nine seven seven. Yeah, <laughs> not one nine seven eight or two thousand <laughs> two thousand twenty two. I chose one nine seven seven because it's roughly twenty four percent caloric restriction from what I you know what general guidelines would be for my age and level of activity. If I want to be in a caloric restriction diet, uh, which is, has a lot of you know interesting evidence of long of healthy lifespan, I just chose nineteen seventy seven because that was the year I was born. Yeah. So whether, you know, plus or minus 30, whatever. I mean, having watched, because you have this video on the Blueprint website of kind of your typical morning, and it is kind of like, you have this like drink concoction you have in the morning, and it's like, it's all very precise, right? It's all, here's a tablespoon of olive oil that I'm just going to drink. And then it's this other drink. And then it's, these supplements and then it's the the meditation and the light therapy and then the workout itself the exercise is its own kind of like very specific set of exercises correct yeah i was gonna say to you danny the the one unexpected outcome here is that because i eat so few calories and because i eat in a pretty small amount of time and because i do experience hunger i appreciate food at a level I never imagined possible. Right. I mean, it is absolute exquisite joy. I can taste everything in the food. So the knee-jerk reaction is, oh my goodness, this sounds like a dystopic existence. It's actually been the exact opposite. I've never valued life more. And it's very hard to get your brain 
to that because we, we all know the difficulty of sizing up exercise and eating well when we go out in the world and everyone's trying to get us with everything. Yep. I just say that because I've seen so many people go through this. My parents went through this. My son went through this. My brother went through this. A lot of people close to me, friends have done this and they've all gone through the same cycle and they get to the other side and they say, you're right. Like I've never actually been better off in life. And I didn't think that was the case initially when I encountered it. Right. What's the goal? Personal for you and your health, because I, listeners of this podcast will know we've done a fair amount on longevity. Like we just had Eric Verdon from the Buck Institute on here a couple months ago, and you talk about caloric restriction. That is, according to people in the field, like one of the quote unquote easiest and most proven ways to increase longevity, you know, effectively fasting with regularity. But most people don't do it because it's hard. Most people don't like to be hungry. But when you talk about this program, which you have kind of created and reversing your biological age, what is the end point or is there an end point or do you think about it that way? Is it the kind of like, oh, I want to live forever or I just want to be happy and my happiness comes from health and my health comes from this program? Is it, you know, how do you think about it? Initially, it started as trying to solve my personal problem since it has grown to something much bigger to me, Blueprint is not a diet or a fitness regimen. It really is a philosophy about the future of being human and the future of intelligence. And so if you think about it from in the year 2022, if one were to look at the horizon of possibilities, uh, like what are humans theoretically capable of? Like in the 60s, it was like, let's go to the moon. You know, like it's, that would be inconceivable for many people, but like just barely, maybe doable. If you pose the same question in 2022, what is barely maybe doable? It might be tackling one of the most significant challenges we have as a species, which is our tendency and helplessness to commit self-harm. Why do we do things that are not in our best interest? Uh, and why do we do though thousands and thousands of times in our life? And if we apply these same principles of aviation, what if society were safe? And, you know, what if I didn't have to go out and deal with the, the violence of everybody trying to get me to commit self-harm? All the fast food, all the algorithms on my phone, everyone's trying to do it and we glorify it and we celebrate it. And we live in this insane situation where we gleefully do harm to each other and to ourselves. And to me, it seems like one of the most ridiculous things we could be doing as a human and if we got to their side, we'd say, boy, that was really a bad situation. So to me, really, Blueprint is about, it seems reasonable to me that we would make human improvement the number one goal that we all share. And it would be the input for how do we better our situation politically, economically, environmentally, relationships, education, the single thing we could do to improve all things would be to improve this core function of us not committing self-harm. It sounds like what you're describing is capitalism. <laughs> when you're talking about like, you know, um, it's not the lion on the savannah, it's McDonald's on the corner, it's your smartphone, it's Amazon. It's about kind of, for me, it feels like what you're talking about is capitalism meets our inability for impulse control. You know, it's just like, I want this. We're going to make this as easy as possible for you to get. I want a burger. I'm going to give you a burger for $4 that is ready instantly and is around the corner, et cetera. But that times a million. So do you think about that when you're talking about kind of maximizing human improvement? You're also an entrepreneur. You have a the kernel business. How do you think about that? And those two worlds, or at least those two kind of forces, they seem to be in conflict. I'm saying that pitting the individual against the power of society is an unfair fight. The individual is going to lose every single time. And so I'm saying this discussion is not an encouragement discussion or like a, a positive quote, hashtag gratitude thing of like, be, <laughs> be stronger, right? Yeah, Exercise yeah, yeah. more, you know, like, no, it is really, really hard to be human. And it's really unfair that individuals are outmatched 
by all the powers of society are trying to get that person to commit self-harm. So I'm saying the only way we can truly imagine ourselves bettering at scales that like exceed our imagination, we have to better society. And so you think about this in contrast, compare how much we worship our technology and how we gather at the churches of technological release with the Apple keynote and people congregating and waiting for the next version of this feature. We go to church to worship technology, but in that relationship, humans are expendable. So we're building this tech. We're committing self-harm to ourselves. We're gleefully having others commit self-harm so the technology moves forward. So we're self-sacrificing for the progress of technology with almost zero aspiration about our own well-being Yeah. collectively. You know, there's individuals working on these little pockets, but would we look back at this moment in a few decades and say, how crazy were people in the early 21st century to not make human improvement the primary focus of societal objectives? Do you think that's realistic that we will look back, say, I don't know, say 2050, just picking a random year? In other words, that society will have fundamentally changed in a, in a way where we look back and be like, man, I can't believe we we're doing that. Yes. If you look back through history and you look at the big arguments of, would you have wanted to be that the Earth is the center of the universe or, or you know, the Earth was, was, was orbiting around the sun? Where would you want to have been at? Like, take your topic over the history and, you know, history kind of moves through these things and we societally agree on certain things. I, yes, I think we will coalesce very soon around this idea that our propensity and proclivities to commit self-harm and encourage others to commit self-harm and celebrate it will be seen as one of the most foolish things humans did, <laughs> ironically, in a gleeful fashion. Right. And it's, it's funny, like, Danny, when I have these conversations, again, people look at this and the knee-jerk reaction is to give me a list of a dozen reasons why this is the worst idea they've ever heard in their entire life. Totally. Well, I was just thinking, you know, like when you talk about having dinner at 11 a.m., I'm like, well, what if I want to go out and hang out with friends and have dinner at a restaurant? This is not a prescription for people to, to do exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. People can modify this to their own preferences. They can eat in society's quote unquote normal windows of time and have their social gatherings. It is simply I'm saying, here is my experience. Here's my outcome. Here's my data. There's probably some power laws in here. You don't have to do all of it. You can probably do 80, 20% of it, get 80% of the benefit. Uh, but it's just simply I'm open sourcing my project, sharing it freely with everyone so that people can improve upon it. But it is in no way, shape, or form me trying to impose this upon anyone else. And how does this dovetail or does it, I mean, I presume it does, with what you're doing at Kernel? And just as a reminder for everybody who, I think you're on the pod maybe a year ago-ish, Mm-hmm. last year at some point, um, where I tested Kernel, which is this neural measurement device you have created. How do these link or do they? They 100% link. And so if you go back to the airplane autopilot analogy, yep. the only way the airplane can fly itself with precision is because it has a whole bunch of measurement devices around the plane. And it incorporates that input and then it calibrates and it makes decisions on how to fly and so I've done blueprint with my body because I can measure my blood and other biofluids plus to ultrasound plus to MRI. So I have hundreds of measurements. One of the only things I can't routinely measure easily is my brain. And so if we say, okay, if we now have this device to routinely and easily measure our brain, how would I rebuild my lifestyle and my life so that I'm lessening self-harm and improving optimal health? And same thing, I suspect when we see the data, we're going to make observations that the way we've structured society now is not ideal for our brain health. And maybe the global cognitive crisis we're having right now is evidence that we don't understand what is happening to our brains in the way we've built society and the things we do. And so hopefully Colonel could be It's the first device ever built that enables society-wide measurement of the brain. And so that's the hope, is that it would bring the brain online and it would illuminate all of us on our daily habits, the things we use, what companies build, how it affects our brains. Global cognitive crisis. What do you mean by that? If you look at the levels of depression, anxiety, some kind of psychotic disorder, if you look at 
the prevalence of cognitive decline. If you take any perspective on how are we doing with our brains, the data is not very encouraging. Yeah, you know, that's especially true with uh, teens right now. And it'd be reasonable to contemplate, you know, let's take a look at this and assess, are we doing things really wrong right now? And is this, uh, are there things we could do to improve everyone's mental well-being? And we wonder again, like we, we look at these macro systems of politics and division and tribalism and the acrimony in society. And we look at all these different issues we have. And you could probably trace it back to how do we each feel individually? How are we doing? And how does that affect the opinions I express and my decisions in life? And it's maybe is this malaise we have that we just, we have this self-harm society and that manifests itself in how everyone feels. I mean, I think, I think humanity is kind of beaten down right now uh, from a lot of different things. And if we could figure out a way to systems to be safe in society where it was just a default thing that it wasn't a good idea to commit self-harm or encourage it or celebrate it, reward it with capitalism, things might change. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And on the idea of us potentially looking back a few decades from now and be like, oh, wow, I can't believe we lived life that way. Now we're living life this way. In terms of like getting... You know, for a lot of people, that's just a leap that they can't make or won't be able to make in terms of like visualizing that different world. But when you talk about worshiping at the altar of technology, it feels like a lot of that, if if there is a change to be had, a lot of it would necessarily have to come around the kind of the appification of everything, the measurement of everything, the app. I have a Fitbit, it's downstairs right now, but you know, Fitbit tells me how I slept what my resting heart rate is, you know, you have, you're making kernel, it's a big helmet right now, but I think when we last spoke, you said ultimately your vision is for it to be smaller, easier to use, a household device, et cetera. If we're measuring our brains, our heartbeat, our sleep, our health, and all these ways that are just easy and kind of free or close to it, that feels like a critical piece of that kind of, of the revolution that you're talking about. Is that how you see it? I do. And we all need to remember that that which is normal today was crazy yesterday. And a lot of people look at me and my protocol and they label it with a word that acknowledges how different it is from the norm. And so crazy, uh, eccentric, you know, they use these words to try to paint this like this guy's just out. He's out there. Yeah. But the history of humanity is these out there ideas become the norm and then everyone forgets that it was crazy at one point in time. And so people don't necessarily need to even contemplate, is this idea going to be, is the idea that we commit self-harm something future generations will look back and say, that was silly. If it just becomes the social norm, no one's going to care because most of us want to do things to fit in and be normal. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves of being abnormal. Taking those insults can be hurtful sometimes. And so much of this improvement can be if we just have a few nudges in society and we trend toward this, you capture the momentum of society of people wanting to be trendy and in the norm range of how their behaviors are. So it's, it's not a, an, an unimaginable idea that this could very rapidly move to mainstream society just through basic normalization. Have you always been comfortable with being kind of the odd man out? Or being like, in other words, fighting against or sitting outside these societal forces, you know, because it is what you're describing, the way you live your life at the moment, of this very, where every single thing you put in your body is measured and determined beforehand and you stick to it and this whole regime, regimen rather, that is not the way 99.99% of the people live. And as you say, they might listen to this and be like, this dude's crazy. I can't, that's, you know. 
So have have you always been that guy where you're like, I'm okay being the crazy guy and kind of withstanding the pressure of like, I'm doing my own thing. I grew up in a deeply religious community where the social structure rewarded one for adherence to the principles. Uh, you grew up Mormon, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. In a, a deeply religious family in a small community in Utah. So the social structure said, you win socially with your standing, with your adherence to these rules. And you win even more by repeating the talking points that the system tells you to speak. And so that's how I grew up is here's the rule set. The person who plays by the rules or they appear to be playing by the rules the very best, they win the most status in that community. And it was when I broke from that community that I became aware of how to identify systems in society, deconstruct them and see the powers at play. Whereas I was a puppet in a system playing by what I was told to play, I became extremely interested in trying to deconstruct and then build systems. And since I broke from my church and have been on this different path, yeah, it's my favorite thing to do is to ask this question, what is really going on? What system do I exist in? Whose rules am I playing by? What assumptions can I not see? And then you know, I like this idea of like, what is the zeroth principle insight here? What is the thing that would revolutionize the situation, but which no one can see? Uh, yeah, so I think that's really the future of being human is going to be based upon our ability to do this at a rapid pace. What is the autonomous self? You, you've written about this, and this seems to be a kind of a driving principle for what you're talking about. This is uh, like an airplane on autopilot. If I just simply say, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm good following data and scientific evidence, and I'm going to do what the system does, it, it's basically the observation of, do I fly the airplane better or does the autopilot? And the autopilot flies the plane better. The airplane in this case being life. Yes. Effectively, or, or health. Exactly. And so if, if there's an algorithm of measurement and scientific evidence, and I'm just willing to go along with this, this play, it is a superior way to run Brian. And that has removed, I don't know, maybe 50% of my daily resource expenditure. I otherwise would spend towards what am I going to eat? Do I order dessert or not? Do I have a second serving or not? Do I sleep well or not? Do I drink or not? Like it's, an ins- it's like a gauntlet of emotional torture every day to s- try to maintain good decision-making. And that's all just now done and solved. And so now my brain, I spend the majority of my ability as a person thinking about these ideas and less about do I eat this cookie or not? And do I feel bad? How do I feel after I did it? And so really is a way I felt to try to improve myself at a speed that I otherwise couldn't. So I just eliminate this, this entire area of self-torture. I mean, another way to look at that is like, that's kind of just free will. Like, you know, someone goes out and they're like, ooh, that dessert looks good. I want to eat that. That's a real pleasure. And it sounds like it's very easy to look at what you're doing as like the kind of the um, denial of many pleasures of just like <laughs> sitting down, watching TV, having a drink, whatever. Does this system also require that you be teetotal, that you don't drink alcohol, I'm guessing, or very little? Yeah, um, alcohol in, in moderation. So you're right, Danny. Again, people hear this and they make a list and they say, okay, the things I derive the most pleasure from in life are, and they go through your list. Yep. And they say, if I can't do those things, uh, some people on the extreme side say, I would rather die. <laughs> and I, and they, I'm serious. Like we, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, la- this last week, this kind of blew up on Twitter. And I cannot tell you, there were literally hundreds of people making the statement of do this or die, I choose death. I mean, that, that's the level of strength of people's response. Yes. And if, let me just softly um, hypothesize this, it's possible that what you perceive today as your only sources of joy are actually pretty stories you've invented in your mind to justify self-harm because you feel hopeless in being able to change yourself. Now, I get that. Like That's the problem I'm talking about. It is unfair for individuals 
to be against the power of society. So I totally hear you. It is a unfair ask. Also, it doesn't negate that if you did this, you may also conclude that new joys would arrive in your life that would be equal to or greater than what you perceive to be now. And you would fundamentally shift your opinion and say, I cannot believe that I thought those things were joy before and would actually choose death over this new thing, which is like amazing. It's better than I ever thought possible. Right. And just to talk about a little bit about the science and how you kind of created the system, you mentioned or you referred to your team. Who is your team? Like, what is it? Who are they made up of? And, you know, how much measurement and thought and data has gone into this? Like, how does it come about in terms of like the practicalities of like, you know, what you're talking about? The team is about 25 people around the world. 25 people? Mm -hmm. Not all full time. Many are part time. And they're specialists in certain areas. So for example, at my home, I have a hospital grade ultrasound machine. And I do full body ultrasound measurements on a routine basis. I do my heart and lungs, all my muscles, ligaments, tendons, pancreas, kidney. How often do you an ultrasound? Uh, depends on what we're looking at, but at least quarterly for whole body. Right, right. So we have a specialist uh, sonographer for the heart. We have a specialist for lungs, kidney, pancreas, kidney. We have a specialist for the brain. And so the team is comprised of people, uh, sometimes practitioners, like for example, of ultrasound that specialize in a given area. And we're trying to build up infrastructure. And then we take those learnings. So we do measurement. We look at the scientific literature and we say, what should, uh, let's say, a 20-year-old's lungs look like? And then what do my lungs look like? And then we say, okay, so if my lungs are different than a 20-year-old's, what would you do to get my lungs to be at a 20-year-old characterization? And then we create that protocol. And so it's systematically building continually to say, what does the scientific evidence say based upon this measurement? And we, we implement that protocol and then we measure again to say, how do we do? What biological age do the lungs look like now? And so you have 25, is it mostly medical experts, scientists, et cetera, who are kind of sharing in this data, measuring things and being like, you know, if you want to get X, you need to do Y, et cetera. And then you kind of engineer it that way. That's right. And we move extremely fast. And so this is, this is, of course, is N of one. So this is not like a random controlled trial of you know, a whole bunch of people. And so it's not going to be applicable to everyone. But what it is, is I'd say one of the only endeavors in the world that is taking this level of comprehensiveness, look at the body, and then using scientific-based interventions to address it. And then I openly share this information. I'm hoping that it's, a, it's an invitation for others to do what I do and improve upon it. Because clearly, right. it's not the only way to do things. Others are going to make it a lot better. I think if, if, like, if you want to take a frame that may be useful, you could think about this as I'm a professional rejuvenation athlete. And so if you look at a, you know, LeBron James, no one's going to say LeBron James is crazy because he takes really good care of his body for his sport. But if you just say Brian Johnson is an entrepreneur, then they have certain expectations. And so any deviation from that expectation is labeled as crazy. But if you, if I say this, I'm a professional rejuvenation athlete, everyone's just going to accept that like people who are doing those kinds of pursuits do odd things according to norms. When you talk about earlier, because obviously there's a ton of detail and thought, literally every calorie that goes in your body, almost it seems like down to the minute in terms of how you spend your time. Are there three or four things that, as you talked about earlier, like the power law, the things that are really like the difference makers that are attainable? You know, because if you're talking about making yourself this guinea pig, putting this information out in the world and being like, I've reversed my biological age by five years in less than a year most people aren't going to do everything you're doing. And most people don't have the resources to do everything you're doing. Are there a few things where you're like, well, I did this, this, and this, and these made a huge difference in terms of my health, my happiness, et cetera? Yes. I would say even before someone even tries to do blueprint, there's a power law here. And that is most likely 
80% of your bad behavior, not your, not you, Danny. <laughs> it might be. Who knows? Let's see where we go. <laughs> 80% of a person's bad behavior is likely due to 20% of themselves. That was true with my evening Brian. So Brian from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. was the rascal causing the majority of harm. What was the thing? Was it chocolate chip cookies? Was it a nice? <laughs> was it a was it a nice single malt scotch? Like what, what did you have? Like your vice that you really had to conquer? When I talk about this, I love this. Everybody can pinpoint their exact thing, right? So yeah. it's like for one person, it's like goldfish. Everyone has their thing. I had several things. It was like a second or third serving of dinner. It was like basically, I would work out in the morning. I was near perfect all day in my behavioral goals, and then five p.m. to ten p.m. would come home with the kids, trying to like be a good father, get everyone bathed, ready for bed, deal with the stresses of the day, you know, maybe a challenging relationship to deal with. And then it's like the stress just avalanches on my willpower at that point is zero. And then it's like, okay, the way to massage your intense pain of stress and the challenge of life and your depression is eat. Like that's going to solve, like eat yourself into oblivion. Yeah. That's definitely going to like, you know, like numb the pain. And so it just had all these different outlets of like trying to numb the pain of life through this food. And then the moment I, I finished is like, Oh my God, I hate myself. Like I feel so bad. I, and then you can't sleep because you're too full. And so it's a, it's the singular thing that everyone identifies with and they're so willing to, so I'd say, yes, like the answer to your question is, can a person do something? Forget about going on blueprint. Don't even worry about it. Just identify that version of yourself, which is responsible for 80% of your self-harm and fire that person. That is the best thing you can do to just start down the path of being aware of the versions of yourself that do cause the most self-harm. Under what circumstances? So there's a, like a five-step process I wrote out of, of identifying who this version of yourself is, when they show up, what their excuses are, like how persuasive they are, like Danny, just do it tonight because tomorrow we're going to start something like whatever your excuse is, give them a name and then set rules. So then they show up and like, Hey, Danny, I'm here. Like, okay, thank you, Danny. Here's your authorization list on what you can and cannot do. Let me check my list. Sorry, can't do it. You're done. So just basic stuff like that really, I think is the way to get started on doing this. Don't try to take on the entirety. It's just overwhelming. Going back to that parallel question, are, are, what for you were, were the biggest difference makers or the things that were kind of, you know, that 80% that got you 80% of the that improvement or whatever. Are there two or three? Is it, I imagine, I don't know if sleep is part of it or or maybe it was the caloric restriction. What did that look like for you? It was uh, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., Brian. It was uh, unquestionably. This is just like Ulysses uh, tying himself to the mask, right? Going by this, this uh, trying to avoid the siren song. In that window of time with 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., when evening Brian would show up and be like, hey, I would love to eat a box of graham crackers. And like, sorry, can't do it. Yeah, you're not authorized to do it. And then there's wailing and gnashing of teeth that happens, right? That Brian's like just explodes, dumps himself onto the floor, throws a tantrum, is kicking things around. It's like, I get to do what I want, how I want, when I want, just an absolute explosion of fire. And just like a child in the throwing a tantrum, you have to just calmly talk yourself down and be like, no, like, you're not going to get it. We all know it's a bad idea. It's bad behavior. No, but it's like, there's nothing harder in being human than trying to address oneself. It is the ultimate yeah. challenge. It sounds like willpower. You don't want to rely upon willpower. You don't want to say, I'm going to make good decisions. You need a system. This goes back to the aviation. You want a system of rules and processes that guide everything you do. You do not want willpower. It's, it, the solution here is not habits. Uh, it's not to-do lists. It's not optimistic quotes. It is a system of rules and processes that demotes your mind and gives you more freedoms. I mean, the whole thing about Blueprint is I basically said, okay, my mind is a self-harm machine. I'm going to inquire of all my organs. Hey, heart, liver, lungs, pancreas. What do you want to be in your happiest state? And then they tell me that via data. And so I elevated self like all the parts of my body and I demoted my mind. So my mind has no interest in taking care of anything else except for itself and its own wants. And so it's a new way. If you think about this, this is why I say this blueprints of philosophy, 
it's the same applicability for planet Earth. Planet Earth is our body. If you have millions of measurements around planet Earth, and it's like, hey, Earth, how are you doing? How's the acidity levels? Like, how's the coral reef? How's the, you know, how's the atmosphere? And those measurements feed back into Earth. And it's like, okay, here are the allowed behaviors for everyone to get along. Because inside of me, you think about the same thing. I had war going on inside my body, an absolute disaster of warfare, of violence happening, trying to get this done. And I basically just said, okay, no, we want alignment of goals. Everybody wants to get along. We want world peace inside of Brian. And I achieved it. And for the first time in my entire life, I solved zero self-harm to my body. Now, my brain's a different thing. That's what kernel's for. But for my body, solved. And so if we think about planet Earth, how do we actually be in a state that is sustainable? It's a system like this, and it has to be done by measurement, and it's got to be imposed upon systems and rules of our behaviors. Right now, we are treating planet Earth like we treat our own bodies. We do what we want, when we want, and it's just creating all kinds of self-harm and collective harm. This is a bit of a personal question, which you can answer or not, but I've, the, listening to you speak, it reminds me of a friend of mine who's really gotten into marathon running, and he's married, and he's gotten so into it, and it's kind of become this kind of all-encompassing thing that affects how he spends his day, what he eats, when if he wants to go out, if he doesn't, and his wife, you know, it's a bit of an eye roll a lot of time, it's just like, because it's hard, and it changes his whole routine and the way he lives life i mean pretty fundamentally and what you're doing is even more so i mean i don't know if you have a partner or how because again thinking of that list of things why this is hard especially if you have a partner who is not doing what you are doing you're kind of living two very different lives which sounds hard i'd say that the difference between the two is not everyone's going to be a marathon runner with blueprint Everybody can eat in healthy ways and everybody can get high quality sleep. And so the people around me, my children and my friends and my family, we are collectively, I guess, in a community, uh, we agree upon these basic principles. So like last night, a bunch of us were together having a fantastic Sunday evening. Bedtime came and everyone's cheerfully like, what an amazing night. Let's go to bed. Uh, no one was saying, let's stay up in the three hours, let's have a drink or let's do whatever else. And so I'd say, at least in my small community, it is an agreed upon way of life that we all love. Uh, but I hear you. I mean, it's not to say like this is a kumbaya situation. It produces tremendous <laughs> friction because yeah. it's not the norm. People want to instantaneously label it as crazy and weird and eccentric. And they want to use all these words again because they're sizing up what they perceive to be an impossibility for them to do it, which... I agree. It's like unbelievably challenging. That's why I think it really has to happen at a societal level where this is the norm and uh, people don't experience. So what you're identifying in part is like a person misses out on fun or they create so much friction that they're viewed as the oddball out. And that's a really bad feeling. And that's why I'm saying that this is not about willpower. It's not about person trying to be, you know, like, like it's really trying to change norms so that if a person is, is, telling everyone to miss their bedtime, they're the odd person out because everyone's like, that's silly. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. So that's self-harm. Like, don't sleep at the office in a sleeping bag. That's a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that has struck me, and this may be completely off the mark, but it does feel like when you talked about growing up in a very strict Mormon upbringing where there's systems and you had to kind of adhere to those systems, and it sounds like your children and your parents and your family have all agreed to this new system which you have designed, in a way it feels like you've just created a new system for you and your people. That's the irony, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it occurred to me, yeah. Full circle, right? And so, uh, I mean, it's pretty difficult to not see the irony. So I think that's a pretty funny uh, observation. <laughs> Lastly, where do you think this goes for you personally? Like, do you want to live forever or forever? Do you want to live to your 120, 150? Do you think about that? Is that like a goal? The question of uh, do you want to live forever breaks humans' brains. Our brains are not suitable to address that question. And so there's two points I think that are relevant here. First is 
I think the more relevant question is, do you want to live tomorrow? Not if I can't eat a cheeseburger when I want. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So like still, but there's like, you know, like you're, but you're expressing like you're willing to go into tomorrow if there's a battle of some sort, but most of us end the day, most of the time feeling like tomorrow's worth living. And so the only question that's relevant is, do you want to live tomorrow? And then tomorrow arrives, you ask the same question. Do I want to live tomorrow? And somehow in our lives, people want to live tomorrow. Under certain circumstances, of course, you get to a certain point where it's like the person, but like, if you're doing well, like reasonably well, a person wants to live tomorrow. So I think that's a, that's a question for all of us is like, let's just get to a, a system where we say yes to tomorrow. And then in terms of the age, like I don't again, think it's a relevant question. It's just tomorrow. And then the idea of openness to what our future sources of joy could be. Uh, we have a default state where we think whatever we know right now is the only thing that can be true. But it's having an openness of mind that we may experience new ways of being human or new, um, yeah, new sources of joy or of being that are so foreign to us that we can't imagine. They initially feel dystopic to us, but we could be open to it. But it really is something we have to fight against with our brains. Our brains try to foreclose that uncertainty at the cost of trying to hold tight to the now. And so I hope that human improvement beyond our imagination is our number one goal as a species, that technology is in service of human improvement, and we don't consider ourselves to be expendable at the advance of it. And the way you seem to th view what is happening right now, and when you talk about this cognitive crisis and kind of the rise of technology in ways good and bad, but potentially very powerful for human improvement. Are you convinced that we are at this kind of, for lack of a better word, a historic moment for humans as we kind of move into whatever the middle of this century and with all this technology allowing us to kind of measure ourselves and, you know, approach health and life in a different way? For me, it's difficult if you zoom out on planet Earth and you say, what is really happening on that on this planet that matters? Like, like, let's just eliminate all the drama of human affairs and this and that. Like, what is really going on? To me, there's one thing. It's the improvement of computational intelligence. It's the ability for machines to be capable of intelligence in ways that are both like us and also new. And if you look at the rate of improvement of those machines, it's impressive. And whatever you think of, like, it's definitely up and to the right at a speed that is faster than humans are improving. So therefore, I, I conclude, if that's the real thing going on, the most wise thing we could do as a species would to maybe make this observation and say, let's put the same gusto into improving humans as we are into te technology and have our technology be in service of that objective instead of using our technology to make ourselves lesser versions of intelligence. That to me is the most fundamental and obvious conclusion one could draw in looking at the planet and trying to say what is really going on. Right. But what it feels like you're talking about, and I mean, you kind of said these words, but it's you're talking about changing what it means to be human. Because if you're talking about the blueprint, and again, recognizing that not everybody's going to do this, most people will not do this. But even if they do an approximation of it, it fundamentally, it's about kind of taking an entirely different approach to willpower, to desire, to quote unquote pleasure, even if it's not good for you. You know, it's kind of vices, all this kind of stuff. You, what you're talking about is something that is basically an entirely different approach to life on a grand scale. Yes. And specifically, I'm saying what is normal was crazy yesterday. We could normalize this. Everybody could be on a protocol similar to Blueprint faster than we think. And so long as it's the norm and systems build that norm, we win. And so I don't think this is an unimaginable goal. It's just turning a few things in society. And once you do that, and we have this, as so Alfred North Whitehead, a mathematician said, society advances 
at the speed of the number of things it can automate. I just ruined the quote, but basically the idea. And so if we want to level ourselves up in unimaginable ways, the most basic thing to do is to automate our health and wellness, just to make it an absolute default thing in society, norms, capitalism, society. We do this basic thing. And then once that's done, we're feeling great. We raise our aspirations to the next level. We scaffold on up point by point. But just addressing this really basic thing, this silly observation, why do we as the most intelligent species on planet Earth, why are we helpless in committing self-harm? Shouldn't we be embarrassed by that? <laughs> right. Like, why do we do this? And, and why do we tell so many pretty stories of like the meaning of life is to get drunk and stay up late and have an extra pie? Like, wh- why do we say you'd rather die if you can't do that? Uh, you know, like, I understand I was in that situation also. You know, it takes just a little bit of effort. You know, I think we could turn the corner on this and it could become the new norm and everyone would be safe. Like we're not safe in society right now. It's just not a good situation for individuals. What it sounds like you're saying is they're trying to kind of automate away willpower or their need for it, but humans aren't machines. And so that feels like the fundamental challenge. And again, we may look back at 30 years. If I'm God, I actually, I hope I'm not doing this podcast in 30 years. I feel like <laughs> 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 yeah, almost 80 by that point, but if 30 years, you may, you may, we may look back and be like, Danny, you were wrong. Brian was right. But it feels like that's just, I don't know if that's a climbable mountain when you're talking about 8 billion people or realistic goal, automating away a willpower and mass. The hardest part of achieving impossible goals is overcoming the mind improperly concluding that something's not possible Mm. before an effort is given. Right. And this is the same reaction that people have. They view what I'm doing. They conclude it impossible for themselves, which is not true. But they do so before taking a breath and breathing into it. It is hard for individuals to win at this game. It's going to be easy for us to win at this game together. Mm. And it's going to, just like when I cornered Evening Brian from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. and he would throw an absolute tantrum, I had to stare him down and say, just like I did with my little babies, and say, this is not appropriate behavior. Right. You cannot do this. It is bad for everyone in the family, and you're ruining it for everybody. Stop your tantrums. And it's no different than what we expect of our children and of each other. But we somehow, when it's ourselves, we just allow this to happen. And we then, again, we tell pretty stories on why it's the only way we're going to feel happy. It's a form of insanity that we need to soberly acknowledge. But right now, 2022, you're Don Quixote, but you seem uniquely comfortable with that. You're correct. I don't feel any discomfort. In the slightest bit. <laughs> you know, when people just excoriated me online, like I, I got so much hate. When? Oh, uh, this past week. Oh, is that the, the piece on Bloomberg ran? Uh, no. Uh, this gentleman blogs and stuff on Twitter and just hate reigned. Mm. And uh, it was vicious that people were, you know, like hurling the most vicious insults they could muster. And I love it. I mean, it animates me and I understand where they're coming from and I was them and it's group therapy. I get it. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no animosity on my side. It's, it's just, this is just being human and we're all struggling with it. And so it was just this public interaction that was interesting of how we all deal with ourselves internally. And so this is a, when you touch food or decision-making or this yeah. or that, like, these are like the most sacred elements of society yeah, yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna get punched in the face. Uh, so uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah, it reminds me of the last one we met, Ernest Shackleton, your hero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I appreciate, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it's fascinating. Um, can't say I'm gonna get on the blueprint. I have many vices, but I will. Um, we'll follow with which it, how it's all going, and uh, maybe I'll incorporate some some stuff. Yeah, and, and Danny, don't even concern yourself with getting on blueprint. Just identify your 80% harm rascal. 
from the 20% me. Yeah, just the one version of yourself. And you know who he is. Like, you know what he does. You know how he justifies it. You know when he throws his tantrums. Just identify that Danny and stare at it. Stare him down. Stare that's, him down. At, yeah. That's it. And then, like, if you, that's step one. Don't worry about anything else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wish you luck with all of it, with all the kind of the, uh, the fights to come. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Danny. It's great to see you. Likewise. And that was all the time we have. I want to thank Brian for taking the time and kind of talking through that and delving into kind of not only the details of what he's up to, but also the kind of the philosophy behind it. What do you think? Would you do any of this? Is he a total just Don Quixote character that just, you know, what he's saying is applicable, totally inapplicable to your life, etc. I hope you found the chat interesting. If nothing else, I certainly did. And that is it for me this week. I will probably be writing about FTX this week in the paper because, of course, that's, you know, what else is there in tech at the moment? So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. I'll also be on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thank you as ever for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for spreading the word, telling your friends and neighbors. Have a fabulous weekend and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.